Our text this morning comes from Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 through 34. It's a very familiar passage to most of us, but so dang hard to live like it's true. Let's look at what God says to us this morning in His Word. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of much more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of his life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all of these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Always struck me as kind of pessimistic that Jesus would say that. It's like, you got enough trouble today. Don't go looking for trouble tomorrow. And it's like, okay, thank you, Lord. Father, we come before you this morning and we ask that you would do what only you can do. We ask that you would make your book live for us. We did not come to hear a man speak. We came to hear the word of God and we believe and trust and confess that when the people of God are gathered in the house of God on the Lord's day and their hearts have been prepared and the man whom God has called takes up the book of God and speaks the word of God, that you enter into that process, that your word goes forth and that it slices things off that need to be sliced off and it wounds to heal. It corrects us, it rebukes us, it exhorts us, it trains us in righteousness. Your word breaks the rock. It is a hammer that breaks the rock. So break up our rocks this morning, Lord. Set our hearts aright. Let us leave here a little different than how we were when we came in. In your name we pray, amen. Well, if we were to ask the question, what is the most basic dimension of our relationship to God? The answer would have to be that at its most basic level, human beings are in a relationship to God that is one of absolute, utter, unceasing dependence. And that's true whether we're talking about the saved human being or the lost human being. 
But when we, when we turn to our New Testaments, we find two statements about Christ that are really quite remarkable. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. We turn to Colossians chapter 1 and verses 15 through 17, and God says something pretty amazing to us about Jesus and about the relationship of the entire created order to the Lord Jesus. It says, he is the invisible, the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, those are categories of angelic and even demonic beings. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And then in, in Hebrews chapter 1, we get uh, something of a, of a similar statement. In Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3, it's a little bit briefer. Uh, we'll, we'll start with verse 1 of Hebrews 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So in other words, what these two verses are teaching us is that there is no part of the created order that is beyond the control of Jesus Christ. There is no part of this creation that is independent of Jesus Christ. There is no part of this creation that can do anything except that which Jesus Christ grants. Because Jesus Christ grants it its existence, and its energy, and its will to do whatever it's going to do. John Calvin said in one of his commentaries, I believe in the book of Numbers, it was his commentary on Numbers, he says, miserable men take it upon themselves to act without God when they cannot even speak unless God grants it. It is He who gives you your next breath. And you don't think about it most of the time until you get short of breath. So you get something wrong with you and breathing's hard all of a sudden and the next breath doesn't come as easy as it used to come and you're like, oh Lord, my next breath, I need that. It's got to come from you. It is he who gives you your next heartbeat and the heartbeat after that. It is he who gives you the ability just to blink your eyes and moisten them. It is he who makes sure that your brain continues to receive those minuscule amounts of electricity that it needs to keep on running so that you can keep thinking and keep working. We know from the Bible, we know from the scripture that we read this morning, and we know from the old hymn that his eye is on the sparrow. His eye is on the sparrow. And we know that the sparrow falling dead to the ground doesn't escape his notice. We know that because Jesus said so. But now we know why. 
Because if Jesus did not continually give the sparrow its existence, there would be no sparrow. It would just disappear. If Jesus somehow forgot about that sparrow for a second or lost track of that sparrow, then the sparrow would simply disappear. It would cease to be. That is the nature of his power. And Jesus tells us what the logical and reasonable response to this fact is. And he tells us this in our text this morning, Matthew 6, 25 through 34. And he says specifically, look at the birds of the air. In in verse 26, he says that. Now, the word in Greek for look or consider is not the word for a kind of a a casual glance. It's a word that signifies careful study and meditation on what you observe so that you may draw appropriate conclusions which lead to right action. And Jesus says, consider. Look around you at the natural world and consider. Consider the facts of existence for those birds, says Jesus. Who among those birds builds barns? Who among those birds plants fields or reaps grain? You very rarely see birds waiting for the bus with their little bird briefcases on the way to the little bird job that they hate so that they can provide for their little bird family and hopefully have a nice weekend when the weekend comes around before they go back to the little bird job that they hate. They don't do that, do they? No. And God feeds them. And then he says, are you not much more valuable than them? Now, I'm I'm not a fan of very much modern theology, but every once in a while, um, even a blind squirrel gets a nut. And there was a, a 20th century theologian named Reinhold Niebuhr, He was influential in the mainline denominational circles in the 1950s and 60s, and uh, he was said to be the author of that serenity prayer that uh, so many of us have tacked up on our walls. God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, and the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. That's Reinhold Niebuhr. Niebuhr said that the occasion for human sin grows out of two facts. The first fact is that we are finite, contingent beings. And what that means simply is that we have bodies that can be ravaged in any number of ways. Little microbes. Our bodies can be shattered in car accidents. You know, on, our, on our little getaway this past weekend, Laura and I uh, realized that we were driving right past in the providence of God, the Flight 93 memorial. And so we stopped for 15 or 20 minutes, maybe 30 minutes to look that over. And you go through and you remember that day if you were alive and thinking then, and that the horror of that day. And there's, there's a picture from a helicopter of the crash site taken a few hours after the crash. And you can see First of all, there's nothing left. I mean, the biggest artifact they found of that entire airplane and all those people was six inches. 
So that plane was utterly shattered. It went straight into the ground at 584 miles an hour. And you can see the little round hole that was the fuselage and two slits in the ground that were the wings. And there's nothing left. And all those people died. And there wasn't even enough left to bury. We are very small. We are very fragile. We are very weak. People that we love who are near us die. And it completely devastates us emotionally. We can suffer and die. And we will suffer and die. You and I need constant maintenance from God just to keep going. So that's the first fact, that we have these very fragile little bodies that are banging around in a very dangerous world. They had a beginning. They will have an end. They can be beat up pretty badly along the way before they reach their final end. But we are also self-transcendent. In other words, we know these things. We know these things about ourselves. We, we know that we are subject to, to pain and loss and death and suffering. We know that we live in a fallen and dangerous world. We look at our friends and our neighbors and we see their tragedies and their sorrows and we realize that similar things can visit us as well and indeed someday will, sooner or later. And these two facts colliding in our minds, says Niebuhr, are the occasion for sin. Sins of all kinds. And Niebuhr said these sins fall into two basic categories. And he said those two basic categories are what he called sensuality, where we seek to forget the fact that these bodies are what they are. And, and we, we seek to do that by indulging in bodily pleasures, in food and drink and drugs and sexual promiscuity. We, we do whatever we can just to forget don't remind me of the facts. Keep the facts far, far away and let me have a nice time now and keep my little blinkers on. That's sensuality. And the other main sin or category of sin is pride. Says neighbor, we, we attempt to build these little fortresses to keep ourselves safe. Greed, ambition, vanity, the exploitation of other people lack of kindness, worldliness, sins of competitiveness, and even kind of a, a self-obsession that, that, uh, that we see of people who, I was just talking with somebody about this this morning, you know, people that work very hard to take care of their bodies into old age, and then they're utterly shocked and offended to find out that oh, you, you got sick anyway. I had one of my patients I had in hospice, I will always remember this guy. I only had two good conversations with him. And he was a, he was a very high-achieving black guy. He was the first, they were the first black family to move into this white neighborhood in Omaha, and they were very proud of that fact, and they were received. He'd been an engineer for Bell Telephone, and before that he'd been in the Air Force. And, and he, had, he had taken very good care of his body. You know, all these crazy smoothies and riding his bike everywhere and everything else, and then he, he gets pancreatic cancer. And he's just mad. 
And the reason he was mad is because in his mind he had made a bargain with God. I'm going to exercise and I'm going to drink these nasty kale smoothies and, and that'll make me live for a long time, a, a, a healthy life, God. And it didn't. And so he was mad. He was mad at God. He was mad at me. He was mad at everything. He was just mad. And, uh, and that's the sin of pride. Now, what Niebuhr says and what the Bible actually says is that you and I should look at these two facts. We should look at the fact that we're finite and that we know that we're finite, and we should simply live in a childlike trust in God. That we should simply bow down to him and say, Lord, you're going to care for me until there's no need to care for me anymore in this body because you're going to take me home. You're the God who feeds the sparrows, and I'm worth more than a sparrow. And therefore, I know you're going to take care of me. And I'm going to pray to you for what I need. And you and I are going to walk together in a life of humble obedience. And and I'm not going to worry about tomorrow. It's to understand from the Bible that it is He who protects us. And He who cares for us. And He who will give us the resources that we need when our share of suffering comes. And, And it's He that promises that when suffering does come, that the suffering has purpose. And that we can suffer well. And that there's value in it. But we don't do that. We either engage in sins of sensuality or sins of pride. Or both. Very often, we in America in the early 21st century are really eaten up with the sins of pride. And the central uh, core of pride is boasting. To boast is to say, look at me. Look at me. I'm not a finite, contingent being. I I didn't have a beginning that you need to worry about, and and my end, if it ever comes, is way, way far away. I'm not subject to injury. I'm not subject to death. I'm not subject to, to decay. I've somehow conquered all of that. Look at my brain, we say. See how smart I am. I have degrees. I have read many books. I have written books. Look at all the stuff I have thought of. Look at my body. See how strong it is. See how powerful I am. See how good-looking I am. I can conquer any competitor on any field. I can slay any enemy. No microbe can take me down. I have an immune system. No car wreck will hurt me. No cancer will lay me low. Age will not affect me. Look at my bank account. See the nice house I have? See, see the car? Look, I have a Rolex on my wrist. My purse, it's by Dolce & Gabbana. My suit, it's an Armani. Look at me. Look at how impressive I am. Nothing's going to touch me. Jeremiah 9.23 says, This is what the Lord says. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, or the strong man boast in his strength, or the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast about this, that he understands and knows me. In other words, God's saying, you think your bodies and your brains and your bucks are significant? You think that they're the occasion for boasting and for pride? They're not. 
And not only that, you didn't even come up with them on your own. For what makes you different from anyone else, says Paul in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, what do you have that you have not been given? And if it was given to you, why do you boast as if it wasn't? You see, pride and boasting are incompatible with love. They're incompatible with love, and they're incompatible with living a good life in love. They're incompatible with love of God because they're an attempt to deny the facts as they are and give him his proper glory. Whenever we boast, we are trying to steal God's glory from him. And this is fundamentally what happened when Satan fell, wasn't it? Look at me. I'm beautiful. I'm wonderful. Look at me. I'm powerful. I think I can take on the Most High. And when we do that, we're imitating him in one way or another. They're an attempt to say, hey, God, I'm really not frail or finite or contingent. I'm, I'm, I'm not a being who has to rely on you for my next heartbeat. I'm really quite independent. I actually don't need you or anybody else. I'm really quite significant all on my own. I'm really quite powerful. Look at all that I've been able to accomplish, God. I'm very smart, God. Have you ever seen anybody as smart as me, God? I'm very strong, God. Look at, look at all that I've been able to accomplish. And I'm very good looking too. Lord, I'm, I'm very rich and I've been able to amass quite a pile of resources all without any help from you, without your help at all, without your influence. Now, God, I'm coming to you today. And if you'd like, we can discuss some sort of merger. I'll be glad perhaps to, to work in your company, provided that you appropriately compensate me. I think you'd be quite lucky, God, to have somebody like me on your team. Don't be a fool. You can't be boastful and you can't be proud and love God. Those are two diametrically opposed things. Boasting and pride are incompatible with love for God. Boasting and pride are also incompatible with love for yourself. Now, you may be saying, how in the world does that work? Because if we're Christians, we, we often operate, we forget that, that self-love is actually something that God says is okay. You're supposed to love your neighbor as yourself, and that means it's okay to love yourself appropriately. But we act as if self-love were somehow anathema. And if we're unconverted people, we're liable to buy into the notion that boasting and pride are self-love. And that's what the whole self-esteem movement is based on. And it's a, it's a fallacy. But if the reality is that I was created by God to live in humble reliance upon Him for my every need, and that I was created to thank Him and glorify Him in all the things that happened to me for who He is and for what He's done, and if all truth and goodness and happiness and contentment grow out of my acceptance of that fact, and if the denial of that fact only brings me misery and strife and anxiety and fear and ultimately damnation of my soul, and if I consistently pursue that denial all of my days, I will wind up in hell, then the most loving thing I can do for myself is to pursue goodness and happiness and contentment, but I cannot do that 
unless I renounce boasting and pride. Because God won't have my boasting and pride. Boasting and pride are incompatible with love of self. Boasting and pride are also incompatible with love of your neighbor. And this works in two ways. First of all, nobody accomplishes what they accomplish in a vacuum. Nobody gets through this life all by themselves. They're reliant upon all kinds of people. People that they might not even know have done them good. They're reliant upon parents and teachers and peers. Husbands or wives step in and do things which make human achievement possible for another person. Children often bear the cost of our pursuit of things because of our absence and inattention as parents, um, because we're off somewhere being significant. The taxpayer or some wealthy benefactor makes an education possible. Some higher up may have guided your career. You know, I, 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 most of you know I have a business on the side, and it's, it's a wonderful little business because it pops up and keeps me busy in the spring for about six weeks every once in a while, and, and I get a pile of money dropped in my lap, and then I don't have to do anything for two years or whatever. But I, I loved building that business. I just enjoyed it. It was great. It was a wonderful thing that came along at a wonderful time. But the fact of the matter is um, I just happened to meet the right person who basically handed me my business on a silver platter and said, if you do these things, we will make sure that your product sells. And for me to stand around and go, look at how wonderful I am, is silly. Because somebody looked at me and said, I'm gonna take a risk on you. Some fat preacher from South Dakota that doesn't know anything about engineering and all this other kind of stuff. You don't have a formal education in this stuff. You come to me and say, I can help you, and I believe you, and I'm going to take a risk on you, and he did. It was wonderful. It was just a wonderful gift. But I didn't do that myself. And you haven't done any of the things that you've done yourself. And to boast about what you are or what you've done is to fundamentally deny the fact that you had a whole bunch of help. It's to say, I've done this by myself. Oh, you may give lip service to others, but in your heart, you want to take all the glory. And that's fundamentally unloving to the people that helped you get there. Secondly, pride and boasting are essentially competitive. It means that you have to dominate and subdue all of those who get in the way of what you're pursuing. And so you do crawl to the top of the heap, but your crawl, the heap rather, consists of of broken lives, of people that you've shoved out of the way or exploited or lied to or snubbed. And if you treat people as a means to an end, they aren't people anymore. And so we think about the people that we come in contact with in our everyday lives, the patients of a physician or a nurse or a dentist, the the customers at a business, the parishioners if you're a pastor, and, and they come to exist for you only as means to achieve your goals. And you're not really concerned about their well-being, not really, and that is fundamentally unloving. But I have good news. You do not have to live this way. 
You do not have to live this way. God actually commands you not to live this way. God actually invites you into a kind of life with Jesus that negates all of this, nips it in the bud, throws it out the window, and lets you have a wonderful adventure of a life with God. You don't have to try and meet your needs for significance in this manner. There's another way, and it's the way of love. It's the way of love for God, and it's the way of love for neighbor. And how does it work? Well, it's very counterintuitive. Since our world is broken, it doesn't make a bit of sense, not at first. And Jesus tells us what this way is. He says the way to find your life is to lose it. The way to be exalted and become a person of significance that everybody recognizes as a person of significance is to humble yourself and forget about yourself. The way to conquer is to serve. The way to be full is to pour yourself out empty. The way to stand is to fall face down before your God. This is the way of love. And if you do this, God promises that he will fill you. He will provide for you. He will exalt you. He will care for you. And he will glorify you. Wouldn't you like to try? Just take him at his word. I close with this. There was a wonderful uh, little book by a a 19th century, late 19th century uh, South African minister named Andrew Murray. And uh, some of you are familiar with Andrew Murray's books on prayer and surrender and things like that. One of the best books Andrew Murray wrote, and I've got some copies coming, they'll actually be here later today, so they'll, they're only like $7 a piece, and I'll put them out on the book table, is a little book called Humility. And I can remember reading that book 25 years ago and it rocked my world. And listen to what Andrew Murray says. He says, when God created the universe, it was with one object, the one object, of making the creature, that's us, partaker of his perfection and his blessedness, and so showing forth in it the glory of his love and wisdom and power. God wished to reveal himself in and through created beings by communicating, that is, by giving to them as much of his own goodness and glory as they were capable of receiving. But this giving was not a giving to the creature of something which he could possess for himself, a certain life of goodness of which it had, the creature had at its own charge and disposal, by no means. But as God, the ever-living, ever-present, ever-acting one who upholds all things in the world by the word of his power and in whom all things exist, the relationship of the creature could, to God could only be one of unceasing, absolute, universal dependence. As truly as God by his power once created, so truly by that same power must God every moment maintain. The creature has not only to look back to the origin and first beginning of his existence and acknowledge that it there owes everything to God, the creature's chief care, its highest virtue, 
It's only happiness now and throughout all eternity is to present itself as an empty vessel in which God can dwell and manifest his power and his goodness. The life that God bestows is imparted not once and for all, but each moment continuously by the unceasing operation of his mighty power. Humility, then, is the place of entire dependence on God. And it is, from the very nature of things, our first duty and our highest virtue and the root of every virtue. Do you just say, I'm going to come, God, and I'm going to empty myself before you, and I'm going to ask you to fill me with you. And everything good flows out of that. That is the key that opens every lock in the spiritual life. I'm full of me. I'm going to come to you, God. I'm going to empty me of me. And I'm going to ask you to fill me with you. And God says, if you do that and you keep doing that moment by moment, you will know joy. You will know peace. And you will know spiritual power. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable unto you, for you are my rock and my redeemer.